Hey everyone, it's Kevin here with the Better Bible Reading Podcast, and I want to welcome you to our second episode of the special edition of this podcast called Teaching Thursdays. And if you're new to Teaching Thursdays, a couple weeks ago I introduced it as our in-between episodes to the regular podcast episodes, and these are collections of sermons, lectures, Sunday school teachings from myself that have been archived and kept and I am sharing them with you, with the audience of Better Bible Reading Podcast. So this is our second episode of it, which is entitled Christian Meditation. And what we're not talking about is the kind of meditation that has to do with exercise and deep breaths in and out, but rather the idea of taking in and receiving God's Word. This is for sure unique to the Christian life, but it is the meditation upon God's Word. And this is a sermon preached not too long ago, about last year, I believe, uh, from the time of this recording, and it is a sermon on Colossians chapter 4. And Paul has a lot to say about Christian meditation, and he centralizes it upon God's Word, upon the Bible. And that means the only way that we can really meditate as Christians in a proper way is if we are reading God's Word. And of course, I'm sure by this time you can see how that relates to our conversations that we've been having on this show and over at the website about reading our Bibles. That's what better Bible reading is all about. So this episode, I hope it will be encouraging and helpful to you to think about the additional element that is in a lot of ways a lost art for us today. It's not enough just to read our Bibles. We have to be catching what's being said. We have to be placing it within our hearts, hiding it within our hearts even, so that it is of help to us in our lives. And that's where the idea of meditation comes into place. So I hope you're intrigued. I hope you're interested in this idea. And I hope for the next 40 minutes or so, you're able to learn something from Colossians chapter 4 from the Apostle Paul in God's holy word where we are taught how we as Christians should be meditating on God's word. So enjoy this episode. If you're listening to this from a link on social media or if you've come to this from the website, I want to invite you to go to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. That would be a great way to help me kind of track who is listening to this on a consistent basis. So without further ado, here's the episode. I hope you enjoy it. God bless. This morning, we're thinking about the lost art of Christian meditation, and that might seem like a strange concept, hence the fact that it is a lost art. And as we think through that, as we think through what the Apostle Paul says to us, He maps out for us different concepts, different ways of thinking about what Christian meditation is, how we do it, how we obey the call to do it. But before we get into the particulars of this text, I would like to set in the backdrop for us a stark contrast to what the Apostle Paul is saying, and that would be with a very quick analysis of the opposite of Christian meditation or biblical meditation, and that would be secular meditation. 
You know, today there are more varieties than ever of the practice of meditation. You hear it more and more in our culture. And what used to be directly associated with Buddhism is now a practice of meditation that is very much secular in nature, not tied to any type of religion or any concept of God, but really tied to the person themselves. Um, there was a popular book in 1989, many of you have probably read, if you're a business owner or think through that thing, it's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And uh, if, if that book were to be rewritten in the 21st century, um, I am sure that one of those seven habits of highly effective people in our culture today would include meditation. In meditation, it is said, you can do a simple web search of this, by the way, uh, but some of the things that are told to us that meditation accomplishes are the reduction of stress, the, the alleviation of anxiety, the promise of you to be able to come to terms with who you are, your inner self, your life's purpose. And the process is certainly clear enough. Um, it's a passive process. It is not a process that comes from without, something that comes from beyond you. It is a process to search as deep and as far as you can within. It is a passive process where you simply remove all bad thoughts, all bad energies, and all of these things are outside of you trying to make their way into you and you're looking deep enough within yourself to rid yourself of all the outward influences Clear your mind, empty your thoughts. Those are popular phrases of what we're talking about when we think about secular meditation. And really the goal is to create your own reality. The goal is to work within yourself to achieve liberation from suffering, to cultivate traits of compassion, joy, etc., and beloved, this morning in stark contrast to the secular view of meditation, we have the Christian view, the biblical view of meditation. And the goal in Christian meditation is not to come to terms with our own reality, but to come to terms with the reality of Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is full of examples of meditation. The term itself is often described with a sense of contemplation, a sense of study. We saw that in the Old Testament reading this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 6, that practice of meditation, diligent study, keeping the mind fixed upon. In the Hebrew, literally, it's, it's kind of depicted as a moan or a groan or a sigh, speaking of the very core of our being wrestling with these realities. And while this might seem to connect with what the world would describe as our inner self, Scripture's pronouncement is that the only thing, the only one that has the power to penetrate to the very depths of our soul is the Word of God. Think about Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of bone and marrow, getting to the very core of our being. And so in Christian meditation, 
The goal is not to come to a reality of ourselves, to invent and create our own realities, but the goal in Christian meditation is to come to the reality of Jesus Christ. And while secular meditation is passive, just get rid of all the outward influences, Christian meditation is active. Look beyond yourself. Go after what has been revealed to us from God. And that's what Paul is pleading with us to do. Now, it may be true that without question, our society is very interested in creating its own reality. A person of the world is not very much interested in what the Bible has to say. They're interested in what works for me. What gets me further and further to what I want my life to look like. Who I want to be portrayed to to the people I'm around. How I want to influence people of my views and my thoughts. It should be no surprise that the world outside of Christ is this way. But what of God's people? What about us? Has the biblical view of meditation become a lost art to you? And to answer that question, I'd like to explore with you four qualities of this lost art that Paul lays out for us in Colossians chapter 3. So that we might gauge ourselves, we might look to ourselves and see, do we line up with what the apostle says about the Christian? So look with me now in Colossians 3. We're going to look in four segments. You can see this in your uh, bulletin. But the first one we're going to look at is... The necessity of meditation. That's in the first four verses. Let me read those to you. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. At the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the theme that Paul is laying out for us in these first four verses is that beautiful phrase that you hear all the time from the the Puritans. That's union with Christ. We are with Christ. We are identified with him. Notice how Paul says that if you've been raised with him, with Christ, he Immediately brings the Christian to a mind that sees our sense of belonging, sense of identifying our connection with Jesus Christ. And this is not just an abstract connection. It is in terms of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, where he is right now at the right hand of the Father. If you have been raised with Christ, and you'll see that structure that Paul lays out for us, if then... This is what Paul is bringing. If this is true about you, then this follows. If this is true about Christ, it then follows that it is true about you. And previous to this passage, if then you have been raised with Christ, Paul first calls us to think about the concept, verse 20 of chapter 2, if with Christ you died. If you have died with Christ... Then you have been raised with Christ. This is an if-then structure of our very existence as Christians. We see in verse 2, 
set your mind on things that are above. How do we do that? Well, Christ is the one who is above. And how do we think about that? Is he simply in a, in a holding tank of heaven? Is he up there, as it were, sitting on the throne, sitting beside the Father, doing this until he gets the call to go back to the earth? Absolutely not. Psalm 110, which is the most quoted or alluded to passage in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is fulfilling right now. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And when Jesus ascended, the place that he went to, according to Paul, seated at the right hand of God, what is he doing right now? He is ruling and reigning, making his enemies a footstool for his feet. And how is he doing that? Well, what did Jesus say to the disciples right before he did ascend? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. So how do we think through all of that? How do we bring ourselves to, to terms with what is being said? Well, set your mind on the things that are above. And what is above? Jesus Christ ruling with all authority in heaven and on earth. This is paramount to our activity as God's people. If we want to think about what Jesus Christ is doing right now, we have to also then think about what we are doing right now. Because our goal and our task as believers is directly connected to what he's doing right now. If Jesus is simply up in heaven in a holding tank waiting then that means that we really have a meaningless life here. We're just kind of in our own holding tank, just waiting until the new heavens and new earth. We're just waiting for him to come back. We're not really doing anything. We're not very busy. We're not very interested in things of this world. We're just hanging out and waiting. But that is absolutely not what Paul says for us to do. We are instead to set our mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. And that is to set our minds on the reign and authority of Jesus Christ. And then verse 3, you have died. Why should we set ourselves in our minds to the things above? Because for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is an interesting way of putting it. You know, to be hidden with Christ does not mean that we are dissolved, that we are erased, that our identities are suddenly vanished. You wouldn't want to walk up to me and say, hey, Kevin, how are you doing today? And I would say, Kevin is not here. <laughs> Kevin has died. That is not the way the apostle tells us to think. But instead, it speaks of the fact that we are protected, kept in great care, absolutely with Jesus, not being forfeited anything that he has promised because we are hidden, kept safe, protected with him. And then Paul says this, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You know, this is really a crossroads of the two meditation thoughts because in Buddhism, the meditation process is a means toward that ultimate goal of nirvana. And not to get into all the technicalities of that, but to put it in one way, the goal is whatever state you find yourself on this earth, rid yourself of pain and suffering as much as you can because when that next time you die and you're reincarnated, you become to a greater height of existence until ultimately 
You shed yourself of the physical body or the physical matter altogether, and you are just spirit. You're just identified with concepts of peace and belonging. And really, the irony is that while secular meditation in this way is to bring about greater and greater character traits of yourself, ultimately the goal is to shed yourself of your character altogether, to shed yourself of your very identity. And the beautiful thing about Christianity, number one, is that Christ Jesus, though he does call us to lay aside ourselves in terms of our desires, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. But he doesn't call us to erase ourselves. He doesn't tell us one day you'll finally be rid of that physical body. No, our promise is that our physical body will be glorified, will be made new, will be redeemed ultimately. And to put it this way, in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me just say it this way. We do not wait until our resurrection to identify with Jesus Christ. In fact, our union with him is this comprehensive shareability of everything between Christ and ourselves. Look at these first four verses. We have died with him. Justification. We are raised and reigning with him now. Sanctification. We will appear with him. Glorification. Every aspect of the Christian life belonging to Jesus Christ, identifying with him in his death, identifying with him in his resurrection and ascension, and finally identifying with him in his return. All aspects of the Christian life. If you have been raised with Christ Jesus, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And there's Paul's thesis, those first four verses. And now in the next verses 5 through 17, he simply expounds on that. So look with me at the next one. If that is our necessity of meditation, if meditation as a Christian is an if-then construct, if you're a Christian, if you have been raised with Christ, seek. Seek the things that are above. That's our necessity, our call to it. And now in verses 5 through 11, there's another aspect of it, the negation of meditation. And if verses 1 through 4 are all about our union with Christ, verses 5 through 11 are all about the practice of active mortification. That is the active putting away of sin. We read that in our shorter catechism this morning, that sanctification is that dying more and more to self and looking and growing to be more and more like Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is an interesting element. And, you know, John Owen, the Puritan who I very often like to quote because I really enjoy reading him, came up with the phrase that you'll see in a lot of uh, Reformed writing, especially anybody that has any kind of appreciation for John Owen has probably heard this phrase that he coined in his book on mortification of sin. He said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that summarizes the antithesis for us between the Christian life and the way of the world. How do we do that? Well, it requires ongoing repentance, doesn't it? It requires that we look more and more to Jesus Christ. We repent of the fact that we have sold ourselves yet again more and more to the works of the flesh. 
And when it comes to sin for Christians, we're not called to manage our sin. We're not called to limit our sin. We're not even called to have a budget for sin. This is one of those phrases I use a lot. You, you look at many Christians, many of us even in our own minds, we have this idea. I have been good for a very long time. I, I've been killing it for a long time. I, I got a great track record. I'm going to give myself a sin allowance. But beloved, why is it that we act that way? Because Paul certainly leaves no room for us to give ourselves a sin allowance. To simply manage our sin. No, he calls us to put it to death. In fact, he has a threefold negation of Christian meditation. Verse 5, put to death. Verse 8, put away. Verse 9, put off. If there's anything clear, there's a negative element of Christian meditation. And that is to put off sin. To kill sin. Leave no room or provision for it. Verse 5, we look at... What is earthly in us? What is fleshly of us? And he gives that list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, etc. And in these, it is interesting that we think about these thoughts should be dead in our minds. That's what that word, that phrase means, put to death in verse 5, to regard as dead within our own minds. And of course, we're thinking about meditation, aren't we? We're thinking about what Paul calls us to do here. So in our minds, we should not even afford ourselves a possibility of these things. In other words, these traits, these actions, these thoughts, they're dead to us now because we've been raised with Christ. And it's interesting that when he thinks about God's wrath, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. These are not only acts, but these are the desire to seek them out too. It's one thing for us to say and agree God's wrath is coming for murder. But God's wrath is also coming for hatred. It's one thing to say God's wrath is coming for adultery. It's another thing to say God's wrath is coming for lust. It's one thing to say God's wrath is coming for theft. It's another thing to say that God's wrath is coming for covetousness. But Paul's not simply satisfied with telling us you're a believer, so don't do these things. No, he says, you're a believer, so don't even think about these things. Don't even consider them in your mind. And then in verse 8, we're told to put away. And verse 5, put to death, is to regard it as dead in our minds. Verse 8, to put away, is to regard them as being bound in prison. We are to bind them through Jesus Christ in prison. They, they have no authority, no power. Here's what he says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Our mouths are in view here. If we're thinking about our minds in the first aspect of negation, we're thinking about our mouths in the second one. What is it that you say in the workplace? If somebody were to take a summary of all the things you've said, what kind of world are you painting for them? What kind of view of Jesus Christ are you painting for them? When you speak with your spouse, when you speak with your children, what kind of view are you painting for Jesus Christ and how you regard him? Meditation is not only about thinking, it's about what we say. It's active for the Christian. And then again in verse 9, 
Do not lie to one another. Why? Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And that put off. This is the third way that Paul uses the negation. You have put off the old self. And that phrase put off is used just previously in the book of Colossians. In Colossians 2.15 where it's translated that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities. And put them to open shame. So let's put that all together. Verse 5 put to death. Regard these things as dead within our minds. Verse 8, put them all away, bound in prison. And verse 9, put off, disarmed and stripped of all power. Why should we do that? Why must we do that? Why should we think about this negation of meditation? Because we have put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And if there's one thing that is true of all of us is that we are all image bearers, right? We read that in our Old Testament and New Testament reading this morning that God made man and woman in his own image. And we also share in the image of that first man, Adam. We share with him in a negative way because just as Adam disobeyed, so we disobey the Lord. Outside of Christ, we bear that image of Adam. But there's a new self here. There's a new self. And in that new self, we are being renewed in knowledge. It's interesting. The very thing that was Adam's demise was the seeking after knowledge in all the wrong ways. And yet in our new image bearer, Jesus Christ, and bearing his image There's that right pathway again to knowledge, but this time it's through Jesus Christ. It's an interesting element. And in that, I just have to say at this point that we in our culture have a devastating worldview in the church, especially in leadership. You think about this pursuit sounds to the world and to many so-called Christian organizations, this pursuit of looking like Christ and laying aside these things is often just rendered as legalism. You're just being legalistic. You're just being holier than thou. And it is actually now a virtue to be relatable to people and to be transparent. So we have a sin of relatability and we have an idol of transparency where a pastor is nowadays congratulated because I heard him say a cuss word and I can't believe it, but he relates to me. He's transparent. He doesn't try to come off like he's holy, but beloved, there's no room for that. Paul calls us to be holy, to bear the image of Jesus Christ. There's no room for the ways of the world anymore for us. And how is that? How can we think about that? Because if we have been raised with Christ, we are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We don't try harder in order for this to happen. We look to the reality of Jesus Christ. If, then. The third element here that we're thinking about, if we have talked about the Negation of meditation in 5 through 11. Now we want to talk about the positive side of it. If we're supposed to put these things away and put these things off, now what does Paul say? Put on. And this is the anatomy 
This is the construct of our meditation, verses 12 through 15. The flourishing of the body of Christ. To put it simply, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, verse 12, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These traits are beautiful evidences that we see Jesus Christ ruling and reigning, that we identify with him in his resurrection and ascension, that because he has all authority in heaven on earth, we do not fall prey as slaves to sin any longer. That is the sanctification process, a mind towards Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful way that it orchestrates itself because it's not just a vertical element. It's a horizontal element. Here's how he says it. Verse 13, bearing with one another. We look to one another as the body of Christ to build one another up. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And he, just like he gives a threefold negation, now he gives a threefold positive side to it. Verse 10, put on. Verse 12, put on. And verse 14, put on. Verse 10 is that putting on the new self, the mind of Christ. So we put on true knowledge. Verse 12, as God's elect, God's chosen ones, we now have new desires. So we put on new desires, the character of the body. And it's a wonderful picture when we think about the anatomy, the body of Christ, all the members of that body. Because in verse 14, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So if the new self is the knowledge of the body, the mind of the body, if verse 12 is the desires and character of the body, then love is the skin of the body. Love holds it all together. Love binds it all together. It is through love that we do all of these things. And then a beautiful picture too in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And here we have peace, the heartbeat of the body. Peace is the heartbeat of the body. This is a peaceable meditation that we have. A peaceable meditation on our peace with God. And that leads to peace with one another. It is that horizontal element among ourselves that is informed by the vertical relationship we have with Jesus Christ. And so we have a necessity to meditation. We have a negation to meditation. We have the anatomy of meditation. And all of those three things are grounded in that truth that I'll read once again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And finally, verses 16 and 17, we have an abundance of meditation. To put it simply, this is a rich supply of the word of God. Streams of living water supplied for us to partake in. And this is really a, a beautiful picture. You think of Thomas Manton, the Puritan, who sees meditation as this threefold practice. And before I read his quote, I'd like to turn your attention very quickly back to Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, 
every stanza of the psalm is beautiful, but one in particular is verses 25 through 32. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to read the first four verses, 25 through 28. I want you to pick up on three elements of this. Here's what it says. Verse 25 of Psalm 119, it says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. In this psalm, there's three really important elements that we should look at. It is the necessity of reading and hearing the word of God. Not just for giving us life, verse 25, but for sustaining our life, verse 28. And what is coupled with that? Verse 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me. Prayer. It is not just the word that we must seek after. It is prayer. And what's the third element of that? Well, it's not just reading the word. It's not just praying. But verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Reading, prayer, and meditation. This is how Thomas Manton, the Puritan, writes this. The word feeds meditation. And meditation feeds prayer. Meditation must follow hearing and precede prayer. What is taken in by the word, we digest by meditation and let out by prayer. That's a wonderful way of looking at the fact that we can't dismiss any three of these things. If we're thinking about meditation, it's not just think happy thoughts, get rid of bad thoughts. But it is directly connected to the word of God. And our prayer towards God. It is an impossibility. That we are excellent Bible readers. But bad at prayer and meditation. It is an impossibility. That we're wonderful at prayer. We just don't read and meditate very often. And it is impossible. That we're wonderful at meditation. Without reading or praying. Because these three go together. The only way that we're truly good or faithful in one is if we bring them together. An abundance of meditation. Here's how Paul says this meditation takes place. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. A dwelling word, not an overnight stay, not a quick visit, not cramming for a test. Dwelling, the same way that the Apostle Peter on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured, wanted to set up tents and just hang out for a long while. Let's dwell here a while. This is where the Lord is. And it should be the same way when we meditate upon God in his word, not piecemealing little five-minute time frames, but a rich and dwelling word within our souls. We all too often fail at this. It's a sad thing, and we think about another aspect of that is Bible memory. Many of you, I'm sure, and some of you have heard me mention this in our Sunday school class before, many of you, I'm sure, could quote John 3.16. But how many of you can quote John 3.15? 
or John 3.17? Are they any less important? Are they connected in any way to John 3.16? Tim Tebow has helped us memorize Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But what does verse 12 say? What does verse 14 say? Are they important? We, we, this is not to bash Tim Tebow. I'm in Florida after all. But this is to tell us that we must have a rich abundancy of God's word because that is what it is to meditate. That is what it is to meditate upon God. That is what it is to meditate upon the reality of Jesus Christ in all of his authority and victory. And to put it this way, John Owen says, when we think about this abundance, in whatever condition you may be, either in greediness, chasing after some futile secular or religious aim, or wandering about in your foolish imaginations, succeeding only in driving yourself to despair. Compare what you are aiming at or what you are doing with what you already have in Jesus Christ. If it is true that this meditation is necessary, requires a putting away, and requires a putting on, it is true that it is grounded in thankful hearts to God. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All of this is in thankfulness. And though the Apostle Paul doesn't use the word meditation, I hope it's clear in this passage that it has everything to do with setting our minds to something beyond ourselves. It is not looking far enough within ourselves and finding some hidden goodness or hidden purpose. Rather, we look to ourselves by informing ourselves of who we are by looking to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul tells us must be the case. If you have been raised with Christ Jesus, then this follows. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We think about meditation. We want to give an example to the world that our hope is not within ourselves, but it's beyond ourselves. And when we find that hope, we cling to it with everything we have. We, just like the Hebrews, think about it. We write it on our doorposts. We teach it. We're thinking about it when we're in our bed. We think about it when we wake up. We think about it when we're walking along the road. It is what rules and reigns over our mind, over our actions, because we are so thankful that Jesus Christ has indeed been raised because we have our victory and our identity with him in the new image given to us through our creator. So beloved, as we leave out of here this morning, I pray that we would see that meditation is necessary, but it's fixed upon Jesus Christ. It comes from without. It doesn't come from within, but it informs who we are. In fact, it makes us a new creation. And when we are a new creation, we long for our Savior where he can be found. And that is a meditating upon him in his word and in prayer. Let's pray together.
Oh Lord, we've worked through a lot this morning in a short amount of time. And I pray that we would leave out of here changed. Because what we've just described in meditation is the Christian experience. Our, our sanctification, Lord, is meditating upon the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in light of his death and in anticipation of his return. And Lord, I ask that you would let that greatly enrich our hearts, our minds, the very core of our being. And it would change every aspect of us because we no longer pursue after the image of the first Adam, but that of the second Adam. Not the Adam who fell in condemnation, but the Adam who was victorious, Jesus Christ our perfect Savior. So Lord, help us. Think as would please you, do as would please you, and be thankful as would honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for listening to that episode. I hope that you've been encouraged and I hope you've learned a little bit more about Christian meditation and how necessary it is for us to be doing in our lives as we read our Bibles and think about what we're actually doing when we read our Bibles. That's all I got for this week. I want to encourage all of you, if you have any requests for upcoming episodes, just contact me. You can find me on social media. You can contact me via email, kevin at betterbiblereading.com. I would be glad to answer some of your questions and incorporate them into upcoming podcast episodes. I hope you have a great rest of your week. May God bless you and take care. Thanks. Thanks.